0: A lot of people don't realize that where they are is, I mean, surprisingly sexist. And there are ways to get around it, fight through it, and empower yourself to get back to work tomorrow. Cause you gotta go back to work tomorrow. It's just Monday.
3: <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> do we have to? Do we really have to? Yeah. Sorry. A <laughs> lady
1: like a like a lady, like a
4: lady, like a lady, like
1: a lady, like a lady, like a lady, like a lady. Like a lady like
5: Hey y'all, and welcome to Unladylike, the show that finds out what happens when women break the rules and get back to work. I'm Caroline.
3: I'm Kristen. And in thinking about this episode, Caroline, I was reflecting on sexism in the workplace, and it took me right back to my early 20s, one of my very first jobs, because one random Friday afternoon, out of the blue— my married male boss at the time sent out an announcement that three of my coworkers had been promoted.
5: Mm-hmm. Wild guess
3: here were those three coworkers guys? Ding, ding, ding. Or should I say ding, ding, dongs? <laughs> 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 because not only were they all men, they all happened to be the only married men in our department and with the same job titles as women who'd been there longer. Mm. And the boss's explanation for the sudden seniority was that, oh, we need to create like some hierarchy in the department. So that's it. Which certainly made it seem like the qualities of just being male and married, aka the traditional family breadwinners, meant that they just deserved these promotions more than everybody else. It definitely lit my baby feminist rage at the time.
5: Well, if you want to add some more fuel to that fire, uh, just add actual babies. Uh Uh-oh.
3: Wait, we're throwing babies (laughs) in a fire? Oh, no.
5: (laughs) Okay, no, I'm talking purely theoretical babies here. I'm actually talking about how statistically in professional settings, working dads tend to earn 6% more with each child they have, while working moms earn 4% less not to mention all the overt and unconscious biases that women and non-binary folks face when they return to work after kids.
4: When parents come back to work, they're not like a shell of themselves when they come back. They might even be, like, stronger. Like Kelly Clarkson says, (laughs) what doesn't kill you
3: makes you stronger. Y'all might have heard Hillary Frank on the podcast about parenthood she created called The Longest,
5: Shortest Time. She's a friend of the show and just published a book called Weird Parenting Wins. But initially, Hillary's return to work after childbirth did not feel like a parenting win. And we're going to talk to her about how and why she summoned her inner Kelly Clarkson to come back a stronger storyteller. We also know, though, that
3: sexism in the workplace is a spectrum. It manifests in myriad ways and not just from clueless bro bosses. Whether it's being penalized for pregnancy, being slut-shamed by female managers, or getting stuck with note-taking and coffee-fetching,
5: it can be tough to get back to work when you know that this shit awaits you. That's why we've also called in some experts for this episode. Eula Scott Bino and Jeannie Yandel of the podcast Battle Tactics for Your Sexist Workplace will be joining us to help make sense of it all and tackle some workplace what-the-fuckery questions we've received from unladylike listeners like you.
3: Because today we want to know, how do you manage sexism on the job like a pro?
4: This is the longest, shortest time podcast. I'm Hillary Frank.
5: About a year ago, I moved from Philadelphia. Long before Hillary Frank began producing stories around parenting and pregnancy, she was an audio upstart with a boombox and big dreams.
4: So I got started in radio in 1999. I got my first radio story on This American Life as an unsolicited story, which I submitted to Ira Glass using an answering machine, like a microcassette answering machine, and a shiny red boombox. He invited me to start contributing to the show. I had no experience, and I started becoming a regular contributor. And they taught me how to use the real tools to make radio. Um, and then I started going on like pretty much every big show you can think of on on public radio at that time. So all things considered, Morning Edition, Marketplace, Studio 360.
5: Hillary was thriving, not only at her craft, but also in her professional environment. She worked alongside plenty of men, sure, but it wasn't an old boys club.
3: Yeah, she felt respected, even by listeners. I felt like one of the
4: guys. I really did. I remember going to... Um, a radio conference where there was a table where women were getting together and talking specifically about how men talked about their voices on the radio. And they invited me to join them, and they wanted me to give an example of a man commenting on my voice, and I did not have any examples.
5: Hear that? She had no complaints. No workplace sexism to speak of.
3: But then...
4: There's
5: always a but then.
3: Hillary got pregnant. And what happened next inspired her recent op-ed in the New York Times we're going to talk to her about today. It's called The Special Misogyny Reserved for Mothers.
4: When I became a mom, it it was a very traumatic experience. Um, I had a really rough childbirth and delivery, and it took me a month and a half to recover physically. Like, I just went through this pretty long period of time where I couldn't be the kind of mom I wanted to be. And shortly after that, after when she was four months old, I moved to a town where I didn't know anybody. There were lots of moms in this town and I couldn't find moms who were willing to talk honestly with me about what they were going through. And so I felt really alone. Um, But I had this at that time about a decade's career in radio. And I knew that if you stick a microphone under somebody's face, like you have the license to ask them anything and they're more likely to be open with you. And so I thought, well, maybe I can just start interviewing people about this stuff and maybe um, that's where I'll get them to be more real with me. And so it was really about healing myself. It wasn't about telling stories to the public.
5: So those interviews you were collecting became the beginnings of the podcast, The Longest, Shortest Time. And you wrote about what happened when you tried to get a wider audience for those stories in your op-ed for The New York Times. We were wondering if you could read a passage. I would be happy to.
4: When I started the show, you couldn't make a living producing a podcast, so I needed to get some episodes on the radio. I sent a sampling to my longtime editor at a big public radio station he said he was into it, but he couldn't get the higher-ups to bite. It's weird, he said sheepishly. One of them said, you sound like a little girl. Even when I was a little girl, I didn't sound like a little girl. I listened to the clips again, trying to figure out what seemed a little girlish. The only answer I could come up with, the thing that set this work apart from my previous work, is that I and the other women I was interviewing sounded a little emotional, a little angry. A little raw. These are the qualities that supposedly make radio powerful. Was it being mothers that made us sound weak? There is so much to
3: unpack in <laughs> in those two graphs alone. So what was that story about?
4: So that, that story that I'm referring to, in it, I talk about how I was sure that when I gave birth, I was not going to need any drugs I was not going to need an epidural. Uh, I I was sure that I was just going to be able to do this, quote unquote, naturally. Um, And so when I heard the statistics about how many moms get epidurals and how many moms get C-sections and like any form of of intervention, I was positive I would not be one of them. And I actually felt judgy of the women who got that stuff because I was like, well, they're just not strong enough they're not strong like me. And then I needed that stuff. I needed drugs. And um, and in the end, because I did get those things, I felt like a failure. And I blamed myself and I felt like I, had, I hadn't even really begun becoming a mom and I was already failing at it.
3: That is not the story that I would in any way like associate with little girl-ish conversations? Like, what do you think they were (laughs) kind of hearing between the lines? My best
4: guess is that it was specifically about the fact that I was talking about being a mom and admitting to feeling weak.
3: Did it feel at all like it was the motherhood narrative maybe that we aren't supposed to talk about. And again, too, kind of putting this in the context of of the time in 2010 or around around then that maybe we just weren't hearing stories about, like, women talking about these kinds of internal struggles. Did it feel like you were kind of hitting the wrong note of, like, that they would have rather heard some kind of heroic story?
4: I think they didn't want to hear about motherhood. Mm. I think at the time, the way that motherhood was being talked about was mostly through like, quote unquote, mommy blogs. And I don't want to like criticize mommy blogs for existing because I I think like it's cool that, you know, there are moms who were writing about their experiences and continue to do that. But I think that a lot of those blogs prettify motherhood and they – They make it look really clean. What I was trying to do was more like in-depth storytelling and journalism. And I think that there are probably certain people who would hear that I was doing work about motherhood and just would put media and motherhood together and equate it with kind of the clean version that, that was being put on the internet a
3: lot at that time. When it comes to the piece that you're writing about in the op-ed, you pass it along to, you know, a male editor who, you know, sends it to the higher-ups and is like, and he's like, Hillary, I super support you, but these higher-ups aren't biting. Um, They say that it sounds little girl-ish. And we're curious, like, as for those higher-ups, do you think that it was both men and women who were listening to that story and hearing a little girl and and asking specifically about, like, were there women also saying no? I mean, so specifically that one, the little
4: girl comment, I know, came from a man. Um, but as I was shopping around um, my stories in the beginning, I definitely got rejections from women. One example is I wanted to get a story on NPR about childbirth injuries and pelvic floor physical therapy. And like the fact is that uh, a lot of women's sex lives are permanently damaged because of childbirth injuries and they don't realize that they can get help. And so I wanted to do a story about that. And there was an editor at NPR who was interested in the story and just thought thought it was a fascinating topic – and said she was going to like go to bat for it and then came back and told me like well you know we we really just can't have stories about sex on the radio anytime it can't be like even on the weekend on like a Sunday afternoon um so yeah that was
3: that was a woman and uh, I mean my question is like really you can't you can't ever talk about sex on the Right, radio. so
4: <laughs> I guess what they were saying is that they they won't talk about, like, sex for pleasure um, on the radio. And that, I think at the time, I hadn't thought of it and then later went and Googled erectile in uh, on the NPR website and like dozens of stories pop up like you don't even have to write erectile dysfunction. <laughs> and, and so like, yeah, all these stories come up about Viagra. So like when Viagra was invented, there's a story um, like 16 years later, there, there's a check in on Viagra. <laughs> so it seems like it can go on the radio if you're talking about it from the perspective of men.
3: Well, and I'm also thinking about, like, like public health stories around, like, birth control and teen pregnancy. But I wonder, too, if it's the added wrinkle of not wanting to hear about moms' sex lives. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that's true.
4: I mean, like, nobody wants to think about their mom having sex. Um, but people really like to talk about MILFs. <laughs>
3: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> And and I guess the assumption, too, that, like, all of those, you know, whatever penises are benefiting from Viagra uh, could not possibly belong to a parent. Like, right, no, 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 somehow of not. Isolated. <laughs> just an isolated old man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I <laughs> do want to go back and ask why, wh- like, what you think it is about motherhood in particular that that brought out these first brushes with like workplace sexism that you experienced from your colleagues. It's hard to get into other
4: people's heads and know what they're thinking about this stuff. But um, I mean, something I was told a lot when I was first making this show and trying to get stories on places was that the subject matter was too small and that the only people who would want to listen to it were moms And number one, my thought was like, okay, if that's true, that's a pretty big portion of the population. Number two, I don't think that's true because I think that, you know, motherhood and uh, parent-child relationships are portrayed in media all over the place and are consumed by a general
3: audience. I mean, the the funny thing is, like, you were starting this journey in – 2010, and it's sort of parallel to mine and Caroline's podcasting journey, um, where we ironically at the time were working on a show called Stuff Mom Never Told You, uh-huh. even though it had nothing to do with moms, <laughs> um, which was very confusing for a lot of people. Uh, but, you know, it seems like like when we were first getting started— We also heard similar things that women as a target demographic were too niche. That, like, well, you know, you're probably not going to be able to drum up many advertisers, you know, (laughs) Uh, which is, yeah, it's laughable. It's laughable. What I don't understand is because I don't know
4: about you, but I'm always told, like, women are the biggest target demographic yeah, or one of the biggest the most right, coveted, that they, right? <laughs> especially in families it's the mom who does the shopping um i don't understand where that intel was coming from
3: i mean i wonder if you feel like longest shortest time kind of helped prove the the model in a way like suddenly <laughs> suddenly people see the value in it and um I mean, do you feel like you helped lead that charge? I do. Well, Hillary, thank you so much for talking to us. Um, And also, uh, I'm just thrilled that those higher-ups were totally wrong.
5: (laughs) Um, (laughs) Thanks, you guys. So, for Hillary, first came pregnancy, then came the sexism. But we also know that there's so much more special misogyny creeping into workplaces, regardless of whether buns are in any oven. Yeah, we do,
3: because we've heard all about it from Unladylike listeners. Caroline and I asked y'all a little while back to send in your office patriarchy questions and conundrums, and we're
5: bringing in some experts with answers. And battle tactics. Coming up next. <laughs>
1: There are all of these different insidious, kind of subtle ways that sexism plays out in the workplace, and it can be really hard to see. So Uh, I wanted to do a show where we could identify that stuff, we could describe it, and we could say, look, you're not crazy if you've had this stuff happen and you can't figure out what the hell it is. (laughs) We're back.
5: And Kristen, sexism is practically baked into the professional world. So we knew we needed to call in the big guns or
1: big shoulder pads for this episode.
0: So I'm Eula scott Bino, and I'm in Seattle, Washington, where I'm from, born and raised.
1: I'm Jeannie Yandel. I am also here in Seattle, Washington, sitting about three feet away from Eula scott Bino. Eula and Jeannie host the podcast Battle
3: Tactics for Your Sexist Workplace, the show that encourages listeners to laugh and cry along as they figure out what to do about workplace BS together.
5: And y'all, they were inspired to start the show after reading Feminist Fight Club. Shout out to its author and ladylike pal, Jessica Bennett. So on your site, you say, yes, your workplace is sexist. And A, that's sad. Uh, yes. And I was wondering, are there, are there any that
1: aren't? Any workplaces at all? What we know from like 40 years of social science research, economics research, is that there is a very high likelihood that every workplace experiences some facet of sexism, whether it's wage inequity, whether it's the way leave is meted out for new parents, whether it's who is on a promotion track and who isn't. And even if you're a freelancer, even if you are working for yourself, you're still coming up against some of these same issues because we have a workplace infrastructure that was basically built for Married heterosexual white dudes mm-hmm. who came back from World War II. And, like, we haven't really done much to change that. Mm-hmm. So that's why we say, yes, your workplace is sexist. It's much more likely that you have sexism that you got to deal with at work than that you don't.
3: It seems like y'all have heard, you know, so many different kinds of um, workplace situations from listeners. And we were curious if there are certain types of Workplace conundrums, like sexist conundrums that are especially tough to address.
0: two things come to mind for me is one, just pay is still an issue for a lot of women we've We've heard from people who say after the episode, they felt really empowered to go and have the conversation to get you know equity around their paychecks, and they uh, didn't get what they thought they were going to get. Some people have the complete opposite where they're saying, you know like it changed my my income and things have gotten so much better, But there are other folks that are like you know. It's just I can't fight it because m- me as an individual isn't enough. Right. And then the other thing I think about is people who talk about the boys club feeling of, of the whole workplace and trying to get into the camaraderie and the community of the spaces. Oh, and there's one other which is a lot which we haven't really tackled yet. But the way women mistreat other women in the workplace.
1: Yeah. There's internalized misogyny. Right. That's a really tough one. Um, and we've gotten a lot of emails from from people who say, so my boss really thinks that he is woke or really <laughs> thinks that she is woke. And um, I've tried having conversations about this stuff and they don't see it. They just don't see it. And they get angry and defensive. It's, that's tough.
5: What is it about pregnancy and parenthood that tends to attract sexism or discrimination?
0: The power of a woman bringing a person onto this planet <laughs> is really scary for some dudes. They're like, wow, she's strong. What am I? That Was, was that too real?
1: I I want that to be true.
0: I think there's truth in it. I think that it is scary to think that like we they need us as much as they do.
1: The my my bummer town I want to climb under the table analysis is basically <laughs> like if you are if 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 you're pregnant and you're raising children, you are not making money. Like mm. you are kind of worthless in terms of a society that tells us that we need to be earning and we need to be making money you know the other part of the myth of meritocracy (laughs) i feel like i'm turning into a socialist even as we speak but like (laughs) um you know the other part of the myth of meritocracy is like you know your ideas are what matter the most but what's unsaid about that is that your ideas are going to bring home the bacon for you right you're never going to be unpaid for your ideas you're never going to be uncompensated for your great ideas. and if you're having a baby and you're raising a small child, that that is a business that doesn't make you any money at all. Like that removes you from the meritocracy that we all see, where we have a promotion path and we make more and more money. So, I mean, when that happens and then a woman comes back into the workplace, there's a lot there to indicate, well, you know, maybe she's not as committed as she once was. as but ask backwards as that is, man, because moms get it done. And the research tells us that moms get it done. But it's real easy to assume, oh, she's, you know what? she's She's got this other thing going on. She's too tired. She's too this. She's too that. Are there some battle tactics specifically for pregnancy or, you know, motherhood discrimination y'all would recommend? So I just want to start by saying, like, we talked to... Um, a researcher and journalist who's been looking at working in motherhood in the United States for like 30 years. (laughs) And when I asked her how hard it is for moms in the U.S. who work, she just started laughing. Yeah. She just like started cackling. Mm -hmm. And she's been doing this for 30 years. Right. Um, But one of the things that you can do is um, if if you know who your allies are, Talk to them about what's happening. Mm -hmm. Talk to them about your experience. Because if you've got people who can hear you and who can understand you, there's a higher likelihood that together you can all make change, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Together you can have a conversation with your bosses, your supervisors about what paid leave looks like, about what the lactation space looks like. It's OK to talk about having a child. It's OK to do that. If that means you're normalizing it a little bit more, that's a good thing. One segment,
3: though, in, in this whole conversation, especially around identifying your allies and, um, you know, these major milestones like pregnancy and parenthood, one big demographic. And by big, I mean like literally huge demographic that I think about are The women who make up 60 percent of our minimum wage workers and 77 percent of our tipped workers, yet it seems like our feminist conversations around the workplace have not necessarily caught up to the reality that most women who are working are in positions where they are hourly workers are tipped and yeah. um, I'm wondering if it's is that just us or do feminists need to kind of broaden the conversation too to to take into account these other workspaces beyond just your typical
0: office? Y- y- yes. Yes, yes, yes. yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's it's sad that we don't like, think back about where we've been so enough. You know, we tend to like be looking forward so often and be in our own heads and our own challenges that we often don't go. Oh, I used to work in retail. Oh, I used to be a t- like I I Yula used to work in retail. Jeannie used to work in a tipping world.
1: Yep. One of the first jobs that many of us have, particularly women, is in the service industry. Right, like whether it's retail or whether it's waiting tables or working as a barista. And in those spaces, that's where we kind of learn what's okay and what's not okay Mm -hmm. in terms of how Mm -hmm. we get treated at work. Mm -hmm. Um, And, man, you're right. There is a big old disconnect when it comes to talking about it feels like the conversation a lot of us have, including Yula and I in the first season of our podcast, is like aspirational. It's like we're going to we're going to break all the glass ceilings and we're going to get in the C-suite and we're going to do all this other stuff Cool. Great. But that also leaves behind a huge number of women who make an hourly wage, Mm -hmm. who get paid largely in tips and who can't necessarily take the risks we're suggesting um, because they don't have the they don't have the privilege that we have, frankly.
0: Can I tell you one of the craziest stories about working in retail for me? Yes. So what I um, used to have this. So I worked at a place where they only have one person working at a time. Right. Because this economy has gone in a way where they're like, we can do robots and one of you. And so um, they would only have one person working at a time. And my old boss would um, would keep track of her periods and then put a tampon in early so that she wouldn't have the have the harm or the challenge of if she began to menstruate during a shift, going having to go back and uh, lock up the entire stores in order to use a pad or a tampon. Wow. Isn't that crazy? When she told me that, I was like, wait, what? She was like, yeah, because it might start today or tomorrow. And I was like, you're preemptively? I'm never there. I'm never that organized.
1: Oh, God.
2: Uh,
5: (laughs) Well, yeah. And so how can we tailor and offer battle tactics for service industry and gig economy workspaces where employees are? or they tend to be more vulnerable to sexual harassment and income inequality.
1: It's a, it's a hell of a thing, man. And, you know, one of the, like, one of the issues with any tactic is like, hey, here's some more work for you to do. Yeah. (laughs) And so, you know, part of it is on the bosses, it's on the managers, it's on the supervisors to be able to start shifting some of this stuff. I mean, you know, God, one of the things that, um, that stunned me was a little bit of research out of UC Berkeley that basically said that if you eradicate tips and just raise the minimum wage for uh, for wait staff, that it decreases the amount of sexual harassment mm. by like an order of magnitude. Like the biggest sector that is reporting sexual harassment and assault claims is the restaurant industry right now.
0: If you're, like, a terrible dude, you are literally thinking, like, you must work for these tips. Wow. It's like a strip club. Mm -hmm. Like, your coffee shop is Mm -hmm. also a comparable strip
1: club. Yeah. And I know that that's not a very satisfying answer to say well the you know the tactics is that the bosses have to wake up and the tactics is that the managers have to wake up and you know that consumers have to wake up but it it just it can't all be i don't know how this works if it all falls on the shoulders of the people who are already busting their asses just to make a paycheck mm-hmm. i mean the i don't know the biggest tactic we keep hearing from people that is helpful that i did not think about when we started the show was that just the fact that they have they have a clearer understanding of what's happening and why like they can name a thing whereas they couldn't name it before um that's that can be incredibly powerful Mm -hmm. name it yep Mm -hmm. absolutely after the break Eula and Jeannie will answer
5: some questions about workplace sexist bullshit from some of y'all
3: don't go away
5: What is the most unladylike thing about you? What do you think you I have? Such a
0: long list. <laughs>
5: oh
0: my god! Um, I carry myself with the confidence of a mediocre white man. I'm grateful that um, I don't know how to be anyone else.
1: I wish you could see me because my eyes literally just turned into hearts. <laughs> oh my as love, Yula said that.
5: <laughs> We're back with Yula and Jeannie, hosts of the podcast Battle Tactics for Your Sexist Workplace. They're here to help sort through some on-the-job claptrap that Unladylike listeners are dealing with. Thanks to all of y'all who got in
3: touch with us for this segment. First up, we have an email from Katie.
5: Katie says, I'm writing because I've noticed that my male boss and male colleagues like to informally shoot the shit every so often. But when I join in, my boss walks away. Besides this occurrence, I don't feel excluded or disadvantaged, and I believe I'm a respected member of the team. But it's frustrating to not feel as if I'm part of the group, and I worry that this exclusion could have other negative consequences as time goes on. For background, I work in a male-dominated field, but have been successful thus far. How do I engage better with this team in a way that shows I am both professional and fun?
0: Dang. My first thought was, you know, I always try to think empathy first. Of like, find out why he does this. Like, maybe somebody, maybe another team member knows. Like, oh, this he got in trouble one time for being too blah blah blah, and so he shut down and never felt comfortable around women again. Which happens. <laughs> um, I don't know. What do you think, Jeannie?
1: Well, uh, I think there are a couple of different steps that that she can try. So, one, uh, if Katie's got somebody in the office that she's particularly close to or has a good relationship with she can ask questions right she can ask him to include her it's it's a lot easier to be called into something than it is to try and insert yourself another thing that katie can try is co-leading a couple of happy hour events right outside the office events um she shouldn't do this by herself because, you know, I don't want Katie to become like the office lunch orderer person, which right. is something that
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: disproportionately falls to women anyway. The other part of that is that she's ensuring that there's some kind of team building happening that everybody has the opportunity to be part of. Mm-hmm. Katie might not be the only one having this experience in the office.
0: Mm-hmm. And I thought about thinking about it more. I was like, what would I individually do if my boss walked away? Well, one, my feelings would be so hurt. Um, they would just be so hurt. And and then I was like, I would maybe try to get a joke book. Ha. And <laughs> <laughs> and try to like be as like That's totally aware. Yeah yes, as totally a, a thing a, you would do. I, I would. I'd be like, I'm gonna get a joke. We're book. Trying I'm gonna to get avoid leveled trying up. So, oh hard. yeah. I love I'm gonna that. get leveled up so much where every the, like the dudes are coming to my desk to kick it.
3: Learn magic tricks. Mm, I hear yes. men love magic. Yeah,
0: no for real. Get some magic tricks for sure. And then and then bring <laughs> you know, bring people to me so that I feel like I'm building the community around what like my personality and my humor versus trying to get in on theirs.
5: Love that. Okay, next we have a question from Alex, who left us a voicemail. Hi, everyone. My name is Alex, and I'm a queer female archaeologist living in so-called Vancouver, Canada, on unceded Coast Salish territory. Mm-hmm. Within archaeology, there's a widespread issue of women being underrepresented in field work, with women of color and queer people being affected to an even greater extent. Because of this, when I had the opportunity to to work in the field one summer, I'd have to prove myself, as only 25% of the crew was female. I broke my ankle on day two in the field season, but because of my sheer determination to prove myself, I walked and worked on a fully broken ankle for three weeks in the forests of northern Canada. Mm. My question is, why still must women prove themselves so much more than men to have the same opportunities in the workplace? And how does this manifest in
2: their health and well-being? Thanks.
0: Mm. oh wow i like i'm teared up oh and uh, the sucky part is the answer is because white men built these positions and these spaces to begin with we we are inserting ourselves into someone else's holes you know and that's really the biggest problem archaeology is not a field that like oh it's a white dude's thing that he he started but i've only seen indiana jones do
1: it Um, so i can't
0: say that i've seen other women do it but like until women start creating their own just like, pockets for their experiences, they're going to be trying to fit into these other guys' boxes. And it's not going to be a, damn, that's crazy. That weeks is. Weeks and weeks on a broken ankle. Oh, my gosh.
1: Boy. The question overall of why we feel like we need to prove ourselves is that, I mean, everybody feels like an imposter sometimes. Mm-hmm. But that feeling and that reinforcement is way outsized for women and for people of color, right? Anybody who's like a first in an area or one of the first in the area, they feel like they don't belong there because it doesn't appear that anybody else like them is there and is having a decent time of it.
0: And you don't want to call attention to your differences.
1: Right. The other thing that Alex can think about is she may be acting on this idea that she's got to prove herself and be as tough as everybody else because she's anxious, right? She's nervous. And... One of the best things that I think we ever heard from one of our guests on Battle Tactics was this neuroscientist who talked about how your brain processes new situations. And if you feel your heart rate rising, if you feel your palms starting to sweat, your brain is going to assign a meaning to that, which is that, oh, my God, I don't belong here I'm the only one who looks like me here. Mm -hmm. I'm going to have to kick ass or they're not going to see me as serious. They're not going to see me as credible. And her suggestion was to try and assign a new meaning to those impulses. Mm -hmm. When your heart rate goes up, when your palms start sweating, you are preparing yourself for battle. Get it, girl. You are not less than. And you are not having an experience where people are going to see you as less than. Mm -hmm. You are getting ready to fight and win because you're a goddamn warrior. Mm -hmm. Indiana Jones ain't got nothing on you. Not even. (laughs) Nothing. (laughs) Not even.
0: I thought, too, a little bit about how Alex is doing some harm for the next person coming in behind her. And I know that that's not fun, Alex, to think about. But because you did that for three weeks, I would be expected to do that for three weeks. And I wish you would have Mm. said something and fought and fixed it so that I can come on and be my full self when I come into these spaces. So I think we have to do that, too, that that always that mindset of like, if I try to keep up with this society, everyone else has to keep up with this versus me being the change that I'm looking for.
3: So next up, we're going to hear from Katie T. And the Dr. Ford she references is Dr. Christine Blasey Ford.
2: Hey there, guys. Uh, my name is Katie, and I live in Newark, Delaware. I had a question for you guys based off of some current life experiences and you know what happened with Dr. Ford. Uh, whew, it's a little hard. <laughs> mm. I'm a journalist, and it's a little sometimes difficult to be taken seriously as a young female journalist. There was... One day I interviewed a person in power. I'm not going to say much else. (laughs) And he decided to hug me when I was seated. So his arms wrapped around my upper body. His forearm definitely rested above my chest. And I remember being really uncomfortable and embarrassed. There were other people in the room. And I told him, please don't ever do that again. And he just laughed at me and that was probably the worst. Uh, The days that followed, I felt a little embarrassed and started second-guessing myself, and I ultimately told my male supervisor, and we talked it through, and he basically called the guy up and told him to knock it off. And my boss, before he did this call, asked if I wanted an apology, and I said no, I just don't want it to happen again. Hell yeah. My question to you guys is this, how do we handle situations Like what I experienced, harassment, inappropriate touching with enough class and being a badass that we can continue doing our job.
0: Mm. So I have this motto, personally, of if someone's going to be uncomfortable, it's not going to be me. (laughs) Right? That's just it. And people say or do things that are meant to make us uncomfortable so often. And one of the things that makes me more comfortable when something awkward happens is calling it as plainly as it is. And one thing that's gotten... I think is, allows for people to see more clearly why I, I'm saying what I'm saying is when I tell them how it makes me feel. So instead of saying, like, I don't want you to do that again, you know, and he's like, "Ah, whatever, it'd be it'd be very different if it was like when you hugged me like that, it made me feel like you thought my body was up for grabs. And it's not up for grabs because I'm equal to you in all ways as a human being, as you can imagine, because the the thing that has to happen next in those situations is, is that person has to listen. Right. You know, I can't hug her anymore because every time I hug her, she feels this way. Sure. But maybe you also might have the understanding of like, maybe this happens every time I hug every girl like this. Uh, She doesn't she doesn't like it versus she feels violated are very different um, lenses.
1: I mean, I have to say, I think I'm really impressed with the way Katie handled that. And her boss. Damn. Yes. I'm really, really impressed. I feel like. It surprises me that her question is, how do we handle these things with enough class to be able to continue doing our jobs? Because from what I can tell, she absolutely did handle it mm-hmm. with enough class to be able to continue doing her job. The only place where it seemed like she faltered was in those moments after that powerful man laughed at her and she started questioning herself.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That that moment... Where he laughed at her has nothing to do with her. No. It has everything Mm -hmm. to do with him and who he thinks he is. I wish that she had never questioned herself because she didn't do anything wrong and she was no less a professional. And if you have to walk into that room again and say again, don't touch me like that, you keep doing it. You keep registering your discomfort so that he's aware of it. Right. Mm -hmm. It doesn't solve the problem. None of this solves the problem of some people with power thinking they can exercise their power any damn way they want to on anyone they choose to. But Katie should never question herself if she finds herself in that situation again. Mm
2: hmm.
0: She has to kind of think often, too, if she has the support system of her team the way she does, that maybe they're OK with her not always being in the most classy way of telling a, a creep to not be creepy. Maybe you need to say it in the strongest way. Mm-hmm. Maybe you need to say it in the most uh, impactful way. But uh, cla- if they're not classy, why must I mean, was he wearing a handkerchief? Like, was there a monocle? Why <laughs> do she feel the pressure to keep up her her angles? That's a good question. Yeah.
1: It sounds like Katie still did the job she needed to do. Hell, yeah.
0: Hell yeah. And then her boss called, Big ups to your boss, bro. Tell your boss I love them.
1: <laughs> so
5: we want to ask you uh, as coworkers, as colleagues, what do y'all do to maintain a healthy workplace for each other? Mm. Oh my gosh. Jeannie
0: takes care of me. So that's really embarrassing to say. Um, she, I think, uh, oh my gosh. So I, being coming in a new mother has been one of the like hardest challenges in the world for me. And what's been interesting is that, you know, as much as we talk about women who put other women down, there are also women who are like, This is your time to go through this, right? Like it's your time to go through all of the challenges that come to you as a new mom. And let's be real, I'm a freelancer, I'm a woman of color. Like every single like research thing that you read about how hard it is for us out here, I'm living in that. Like Jeannie knows I ain't got no money in my bank account right now. And um she helps me survive the challenges of trying to get on the level of what's expected for me as a as a journalist and NPR like person blah 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 and she's guided me through this in a way that I feel confident getting into it because otherwise I would be out here trying to figure out literally a 3 month old when I got here and a job I've never had like when I say a job I've never had I've worked in retail and food service exclusively and to be in a place now where it was like, this is a structure and a facility, and almost everybody here is white and makes a living and owns a home, this is a different world I'm walking into. And she's held my hand through it. And I just, I'm just grateful. Oh,
1: I love you, man. Oh, Eula, I love you no. too. Okay. Uh. <laughs> so I would say the thing Eula does for me is she yanks me out of negative wormholes. Mm. And Eula has reminded me again and again. That there is more to the world than that corner of a thing that I found that I am pissed off about that I want to wrestle with right now. Mm-hmm. It's made me better at my job and it's made me better at just being a human being. Mm.
0: I It's it's interesting to like kind of um be seen so thoroughly. You know what I mean? I think that I try to see Jeannie and Jeannie tries to see me. But it's just interesting to be seen and like to be like, oh, this is this is what, what you can do when you show up to work your full self.
1: Yep. Eula just laid out what I think should be the mission for every workplace mm-hmm. everywhere because it actually helps the bottom line. And the wonderful thing is I was just sitting here listening to y'all
3: thinking like, oh, I could just listen to Eula and Jeannie keep talking and talking. And I was like, oh, yeah. Yeah, you can because they got a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So thank y'all you. You so much for mm-hmm. coming on the show and helping us and our listeners sort through some workplace bullshit. Oh, thank you.
1: Okay. Bye. 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 Bye.
5: Kristen, I absolutely love them and I love their chemistry and... One thing that I think is really admirable and inspiring is that a lot of their power lies in the fact that they are true, not only work wives, but work allies as well.
3: Totally, and you know, it's inspiration for our Work whiffery <laughs> as well, because, like, you and I have hustled in places and for people who were not interested in us being our full selves at work. I think I actually like had some some meetings with old bosses about being too much of my full self. <laughs> Same. <you know? laughs> and now though that we're two independent unladies, like that's still such an important thing to be mindful of. You know, like taking that old vitamin empathy.
5: And if y'all want to learn more about empathy and feminist economics and why working for women isn't a magical cure for sexism on the job, check out the money chapter in our book, Unladylike, a field guide to smashing the patriarchy and claiming your space. You can find Hilary Frank's book, a crowdsourced collection
3: of parenting hacks that does not make parents feel bad about themselves, at weirdparentingwins.com.
5: And y'all, subscribe to all these wonderful women's podcasts while you're at it. We'll put the links to all of these things and our sources for this episode on our website, unladylike.co. Okay, y'all, we know you've got some thoughts on workplace sexism to share with us. So email us at hello at unladylike.co. Or hit us up on social at Unladylike Media with your questions, conundrums, and advice if you've got it. Also, did you know
3: that Unladylike makes special bonus episodes that are only available on Stitcher Premium? And if you sign up, you also get access to tons of other amazing exclusive content.
5: Yeah, like for instance, our brilliant pal Julia Bainbridge's amazing new season of her podcast, The Lonely Hour. It's a show about loneliness, but it's not a bummer, I promise. It's seriously a delight. Find it and so much more by going to stitcherpremium.com and use code unladylike to get a month of free listening. Abigail Keel
3: is a senior producer of Unladylike. Nora Ritchie is our associate producer. Mixing and sound design is by Casey Holford. Gianna Palmer is our story editor. Ash Sanders transcribes our tape. Our music is by Flamingo Shadow, Amit May Cohen, and Sarah Tudson. Our executive producers are
5: Chris Bannon and Jenny Radalit. Special thanks to KUOW. And we are your hosts, Kristen Conger. And Caroline Irvin. Next week... People need to know, you're all surrounded, you just don't know it. It's so common, you can't throw a phone in the subway and not hit at least four people with herpes. We're dropping some facts about herpes, and hopefully destigmatizing the shit out of it. Just in time for Valentine's
3: Day, so make sure you subscribe to our show and your favorite podcast app so you don't miss it.
5: And remember y'all, got a problem? Get
3: unladylike.
5: And just remember, what
1: doesn't kill you makes you stronger. ha
4: Stitcher.